We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall never surrender until in God's good time, the new world, with all its power and might, steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of people. In times of universal deceit, truth is the only rebellion left. On today's show, more Q&A, more questions and answers. And today's question is this, is homosexuality an inherited trait? Are we born to be gay, just like we're born with a given color of skin, or we're born to be male and female? Is homosexuality in your DNA? I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion. Good morning and welcome to The Rebellion. Thanks for listening into the show. Well, today's Q&A, today's questions and answers time, focuses on a very popular, almost a universally accepted view right now, and that is that you are born to be gay or you're born to be trans. You're born to be LGBTQIA. This is an inherited trait. It's genetic. It's in your DNA. Many people, in fact, most people, accept this argument as just a fact. It's not even a theory any longer. The common response is, well, science says that being gay is not a choice. Science says that if you're LGBTQIA, if you're trans, if you're a lesbian, if you're homosexual, if you're gay, that that's just who you are. It's in your genetics. It's part of the reality of your existence. You were born that way can't do anything about it. Not a choice. In fact, I was just having this conversation with a business owner here locally. Someone who's very upset about the drag queen performances in Bartlesville, Oklahoma that are being debated right now. Public drag queen parties in the public parks. She's upset about it. She doesn't think it should be taking place, that it's grooming children. But yet in the same breath, this business owner, this small business owner argued that LGBTQIA folks and people, homosexuals are born that way. I just don't believe it's a choice, she said. Well, how do you respond to this? That's the nature of today's show. So when I get back, I'll read the question that I received recently from someone, and then I'll give you my response to this very issue. I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion, and I'll be right back in a couple minutes. In 1978, George and Kate Tedford set out to protect Oklahoma businesses better. Today, their son and our CEO, Mark Tedford, is excited to carry on his family's legacy. Professional liability, compliance, property, workers' comp, health and life. Tedford Insurance's dedicated team gives you access to the nation's largest insurance providers, negotiates the best rates, and protects their own legacy like no one else. Call 918-299-2345 or tedfordinsurance.com. The Patriot Auto Group, locally owned and operated. The Patriot family of dealerships takes great pride in supporting the communities we serve throughout the great state of Oklahoma. The Patriot Auto Group's charitable work has been recognized throughout Oklahoma. Whether it's visiting one of our local dealerships or simply shopping and buying online with our doorstep delivery, the Patriot Auto Group takes the stress out of buying a new or used vehicle. And every purchase comes with our exclusive peace of mind 
Patriot Pledge. You get engines for life, plus one-year maintenance, and 10 full years of roadside assistance, plus so much more. Sure, we can sell you a car, but supporting our community and lending a hand to our neighbors in need? Sold. The Patriot Auto Group. Proud Oklahomans in the communities we serve. Okay, welcome back to The Rebellion. So as I said before the break, today's show is about this popular argument that homosexuality is not a choice, but rather it's an inherited personal trait. Much like one's race or height or skin tone or any other unchosen physical characteristic, that homosexuality is the exact same thing. It's the exact same thing as your height, your weight, your skin color, your race, your gender. And uh, even gender is confusing today because it used to be that you could say, well, you're either male or female. But the LGBTQIA argument of subjective identity claims, of defining yourself by your inclinations rather than your actual biological identity, has led us to even deny the trait of being male, the trait of being female. And I would argue it's going to lead, to, lead us to deny the traits of race, um, that you can deny that you're of a given race because you identify with another race. You've already seen people make this argument. Uh, what's her name? Rachel Dazal, I believe is her name up in uh, the state of Washington, was it? Or was it uh, Oregon? I can't remember which, but I think it was in the Seattle area where she made the argument that she was African-American. Well, she's not. She's Caucasian. Uh, she can make herself look African-American because she has a darker complexion and she can do something to her hair to mimic or create a caricature of what she thinks black, black people look like, but that doesn't make her so. This is literal black-facing. This is pretending to be something you're not. It should offend people. But we're so confused in our culture right now that we embrace this lunacy rather than confront it, challenge it, and say that's just not so. So here's a question. This is a direct question I received uh, here in Bartlesville, Oklahoma, the heartland of America. And if you're listening from some other state right now, which I know many of you are, you still need to attend to this because this exact same question could be asked of you in your own backyard and probably has. The question is this. Recently, I had a conversation with my neighbor regarding our church, and I showed her a handout on what our church believes on the fact that homosexuality is a choice. My neighbor disagreed with me. And just yesterday, the same topic came up with um, a visitor um, while I was talking to several friends. All three agreed, all three of my friends that were visiting agreed that most homosexual people are born being homosexual. What's your view on this? That's the question. Now I'll read it again because I want you to understand. It's, it's pretty simple. This person, a friend of mine, said, recently I had a conversation with my neighbor regarding our church, and I showed her a handout about what our church believes on the fact that homosexuality is a choice. Well, my neighbor disagreed, and then just yesterday the same topic came up while I had three people visiting me, three friends. All three of my friends, my visitors, agreed that most homosexual people are born being homosexual. What's your view? Close quote. That's the question. Well, I'm going to give you my answer right now. And I think we all need to be prepared to talk about this because it's such a pervasive, all-encompassing, dominant discussion. 
This is one of the dominant narratives of our culture right now. If people accuse you of bringing this up all the time, my response is, look, I'm not the one who opened up the bedroom door and said, come and watch, come and celebrate what I do. Um, I'm not the one who did that. I'm not the one who made our, your private behavior a public discussion. If you don't want us talking about homosexuality or sexuality at all, all the time, then stop opening up America's bedroom door and forcing all of the rest of us to stand there in the doorway, watch and applaud. If you don't want us talking about it, then shut the stupid door. Keep it private and nobody else is going to care because nobody else will know. I'm not arguing that I should be the morality police on what takes place in everybody's bedroom across the United States or in my local community. In fact, I don't know, or at least I don't want to know, what's taking place in the privacy of your home. And I'd prefer you keep it that way. So if you don't want me involved in this discussion, shut the stupid door. And I won't be. The only reason conservatives are talking about this is you forced us to. You, meaning the American public, the media, the academy, the government has forced us to talk about it all the time because those entities that shape our cultural conversation have opened the bedroom door of America and forced everybody, everybody to stand there and talk about, think about, watch, let your children be exposed to these discussions, these directives, these celebrations of private bedroom behavior. So if you want us out of your bedroom, shut the door. That's one of the things that I think is very important right now for us to remember. But we, knew, we do need to pre be prepared to respond to this stuff because just to remain silent is not acceptable. As Bonhoeffer has said, silence in the face of evil is evil itself. God will not hold us guiltless. We're obligated to enter into the public square and respond. Respond to these issues. If we don't, we become complicit in something that could be going in the wrong direction, something that's wrong and harmful to our community and to our kids. Okay, so my personal view on this question that I've already read to you on whether or not people are born homosexual or not is that in some sense of the word, it doesn't matter. So my first reaction, and I've said this over and over again, whether you're born that way or not, even if you could prove that it's true, and I, I would argue you can't, there is no gay gene. I don't care what anybody tells you. There is no gay gene. Nobody has discovered it. Nobody has found it. In fact, the argument from the left right now about sexual fluidity, I mean, they're, t they're arguing right now that people have a fluid sexuality. That is an argument that is directly contradictory, antithetical to the argument that you're born that way. You can't claim sexual fluidity and then claim that you're predisposed, born that way, and you can't do anything about it. Well, you wouldn't be fluid in your sexual choices if you were born that way. You get my point? That proves that it's a choice when they start arguing for, for fluidity. But back to the point where it really doesn't matter. Why do I say that? If, the, if you could prove that you're born that way, what, it doesn't really matter. And here's, here's how I would explain that. We've, we've got to admit, that we live in a broken world, okay? Most of us, if not everyone, would admit we live in a broken world. There are certain things that aren't right. You've got stuff that goes on around us that is criminal, that's hateful, that's wrong. Even the most aggressive, aggressive leftist admits that. They would say it's not right. 
that um, you're buying into white privilege. It's not right that you're denying global warming. It's not right that you vote for the Republican Party because the Republican Party is unjust. It doesn't care about the poor. It doesn't care about the marginalized. Those things aren't right. So even the left would admit that we live in a broken world, right? So all of us are born with a sinful nature. All of us are born into a broken world. None of us are perfect. Who out there that wants to disagree with me right now wants to raise your hand and say, I'm perfect. I'm the exception to your rule. I was born into perfection. No, you weren't. You weren't born into a perfect world because the world is broken, and you weren't born as a perfect person because you're broken. Again, G.K. Chesterton, the most provable aspect of all of Christian theology and philosophy is the original sin. All you have to do is watch people. Look out your window. Look in your mirror. Watch the TV. Pull out your iPhone. Read the newspaper. Listen to the radio. And you'll find proof over and over again on a second-by-second basis of the original sin. People behave badly. All of us are broken. All of us are born with a sinful nature. We have broken bodies, broken attitudes, and broken spirits. All of us are born with some compromised aspects of our bodies, of our personalities, and of our souls. Whether that brokenness is physical or mental, none of us come into this world perfect. We all have some limitations, and we are all cursed to accept and wrestle with certain things that we will be tempted by, challenged by, struggle with our entire lives, right? I mean, some of us are tempted to do certain things, and we have to wrestle with those things, to control those things so that our bodies are healthier and our culture is saner. So if you can accept that fact, and I hope you can, because to dispute it would be asinine, it would be crazy, it would be a complete denial of reality. And it would be a very arrogant elevation of yourself above what is common sense to anyone and everyone, that there is no perfect person. If you find it, please tell me who it is. Um, Okay, so this genetic predisposition argument really doesn't mean that much when it comes to questions of morality and corresponding behavior. For example, let let, let let me try to explain this. Some people may be born with a genetic predisposition. Let me say that again. Some people may be born with a genetic predisposition to be angry. Well, does that mean that they have the right to strike out at others all the time? Okay, so if you were born, if they did an autopsy and they found that um, all the Piper boys, all the boys, all the males in my family tree, that somehow all of the Piper boys have a larger hypothalamus, and that because we have a larger hypothalamus in our brain, that we're predisposed to be angry. Okay, so this is a biological fact. Let's just assume it is. They prove that genetically, we are predisposed to be angry. We have an anger gene. Well, what does that mean? Does that mean that we have the right to strike out, to be violent, to be... uh, argumentative all the time to the point of discomfort with everybody else around us. D- does, does the guy with the anger gene have the moral right to hit his children or verbal, verbally abuse his spouse? Okay? 
answer that. Do, do, do you have the right to behave badly if you have the anger gene? Or do you have the responsibility, regardless of your predisposition to anger, to control it and to not engage in that temptation, not imbibe it, not satisfy it, not satiate it? Another example, some folks may be genetically predisposed to pedophilia. In fact, that argument is out there right now from the left, that certain people are just predisposed to be attracted to minors. All right, does that give them the excuse to use children for their sexual pleasure? So if you could prove that there's a pedophilia gene, that there's something in the brain, something in, the, in, our, in our DNA that predisposes a certain minority population to be attracted to children, does that mean they have any right to engage in that activity, to imbibe that temptation? I would hope you would say no. I would hope our culture still understands that no, they should be told that regardless of what you want to do, you can't do it and you need to learn to control it. Or how about racism? If you could prove that Iranians uh, or Germans for that matter or any other nationality, if you could prove that they're pre- genetically predisposed to hate Jews, would, would, would the argument that they are born that way justify genocide? Okay, so if you can prove that Germans are predisposed genetically, it's in their DNA to be anti-Semitic, to hate Jews, does that justify the Holocaust? Does that make Auschwitz and Dachau a right? I would hope you'd say no. It doesn't matter. So whether they were born that way or not, it's still wrong to go out and kill another group of people because you're predisposed genetically to not like them. This is the danger of critical race theory. They're teaching our children that there's a certain group of folks out there that it's all, it's all right, it's okay to blame them and to hate them. And you're going to have the argument that because you're, you're predisposed, you're genetically superior to them, it's okay for you to do bad things against them and to them. This is a bad place for us to go, people. You can't. You can't claim that one race of people is predisposed to be superior and therefore has the right to oppress another race of people. No, if you have that feeling and if you are predisposed, if whites are genetically predisposed to be mean-spirited and enslaved blacks, does that justify it? No, we should not do that. It's right for us to be corrected. I'm not arguing that we are predisposed, but I'm just telling you that that argument goes so many different ways. You could argue against whites, you could argue against blacks, you could argue against Germans, you could argue against Iranians. You could put any group of people in a category where you claim that they're predisposed to behave badly toward others. But that doesn't justify it, does it? So you you see this born that way argument really doesn't work. It doesn't work at all if you believe that we still have the obligation and the free will, free will to behave morally in spite of our personal brokenness or the brokenness of the world around us. So the basic question here is, do you have free will? Do you have moral awareness? You know what's right, you know what's wrong, and do you have moral culpability? Are you obligated, are you culpable to do something about that moral awareness? 
If the answer to those questions is yes, then it doesn't matter if you were born with a gene that counters or pushes you in a direction to do something wrong as opposed to doing what is right. Does that make sense? So if you move away from the sexual identity emotions of the argument and you just think about the logic of the born that way argument, you see that everything I just said has to make all the sense in the world. So why do you put sexual behavior in any different category of these other things that I just discussed? Sexual behavior has always been, sexual behavior has always been a moral discussion. And the measure of right behavior and wrong behavior has never been and can never be grounded in the assumption that we are free to do all the things that we are born to do. I mean, the argument is out, is out, is out there right now that men are born to be philanderers. Men are born to be polymorphous rather than monogamous. That men are always looking for sex with multiple women. That argument has been out there all the time, and that women are more monogamous. Now, is that true? Is that false? I don't know. But it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you believe in the biblical worldview, the Judeo-Christian ethic, even if a man is born with a wandering eye and a propensity to be unfaithful, that doesn't justify it. He should be a man of his word. He should be a gentleman. He should be chivalrous. He should be loyal and true to his oath and to his wife. Shouldn't he? Who among you right now would argue no? No, because men are just born that way. It justifies breaking their marital vows. I hope you're not going there. And if you agree that a man is obligated to keep his word, regardless of him being born with a wandering eye, then surely you could you can understand why arguing for sexual behavior and sexual control and sexual morality and sexual responsibility in all areas of sexuality is, is valid too. So I'll go back and say it again. Sexual behavior has always been a moral discussion. It's, and the measure of right and wrong behavior has never been and never can be grounded in the assumption that we are free to do the things that we were born to do, that we can just do everything that we want to do, that our identity will be the sum total of our inclinations, that our personhood will be our passions, that we will be defined by our desires. No, we've never gone there before until just five seconds ago in terms of the march of human history. We're not animals, okay? You're the Imago Dei. You're not the Imago Dog. We don't just rut about enslaved to uncontrolled instincts. That's not what a human being is. We are moral creatures, okay? We are created in the image of God with moral awareness. We're having this discussion right now on this radio show and podcast because we have a moral awareness. We have the thumbprint of God on our heart and mind and soul, and therefore we want to discuss and debate what's right and what's wrong. Animals don't do that. We are not animals, and we don't just rut about, about enslaved and controlled by what we want to do. We are moral creatures, which means by definition that we don't do some of the very things that you are born to do. There are a lot of things I'm born to do that I choose not to do. 
There are a lot of things that you're born to do that I hope you choose not to do. I may be born to cheat, for example. I may be born with the inclination to not study for the test because it takes a lot of work. And rather than study and do the work, I'd rather look over your shoulder and cheat and copy your answers and therefore get the same grade that you got. That doesn't mean it's right just because I was born to do it. If I was born with that inclination to cheat on a test, what should I do? Control it and not do it and be morally superior and better than that. I don't have to be defined by that, and I shouldn't be defined by that. If you were born to be a thief, you have an inclination to steal. Does that justify doing it? Well, our laws still say no, that if you imbibe your temptation, if you actually go break into your neighbor's house and steal his stuff, you will be thrown in jail because the defense, I was born that way, just isn't going to cut it. It doesn't matter. So the argument that homosexuals are born that way is just vacuous. It really doesn't matter. And I'm not, I'm not acknowledging that they are or you are. Like, like Gore Vidal said, there's no such thing as a homosexual person any more than there is a heterosexual person. Then he went on and said, these are behavioral adjectives. So his argument was, we're not talking about homosexuals or heterosexuals. We're talking about behaviors. These are behavioral adjectives, he said. And Gore Vidal was not a sexually moral man. But at least he had the honesty to admit that you're not defined by your moral choices. Your moral choices don't define you. They are your choices. They are your behaviors. They're not your being. There's no such thing as a heterosexual person or a homosexual person, he said. These are behavioral adjectives. And the whole argument for homosexual identity didn't even exist until the late 1800s. I've talked about this before on the show. The word homosexuality didn't exist. Before that time, in all of human history, we were talking about sodomy, okay? We were talking about sexual behavior. It was a behavioral choice. It wasn't a human identity. And the word homosexual was coined by a person who was engaged in sodomy as a lifestyle to try to justify the identity. It was coined to create an identity claim. And here we are, over a hundred years later, making this argument. So we need to be prepared to respond to this. I've just got to conclude that even if someone were to find proof of a gay gene, and I've said it before, which, by the way, has been completely misrepresented by the academic elites and the mainline media, there is no evidence of a gay gene. There is no scientific evidence. So you want, if you want to be true to science, you just need to point out, no scientific research has found this gene. And we also know that some of the research out there that's being used to support this gay identity claim, like the Kinsey Report, was blatantly, blatantly irresponsible and, quite frankly, criminal. It, we all know, if you're being honest about academic research, that the Kinsey Report was a falsification of the data, a manipulation of the data. I mean, my land, he included a prison population in his baseline, and then he used them without explaining that as a basis for higher levels of homosexuality. He was also very, very unethical in his use of subjects in his research, even children. Okay, So if they want to refer to the Kinsey Report, they're referring to criminal activity, very unethical activity. Okay, so 
the bottom line is this. It doesn't matter even if you were to find that gene. Who cares about biological proclivities? You and I are predisposed to do a lot of things that are just simply wrong. Genetic predisposition does not determine what is moral and what is not. If our physiology, your physiology and my physiology, or our chemistry, or our DNA, our genetics, if, if that becomes the final measuring rod of right and wrong, then we're left with absolutely no moral standards regarding anything any longer. Pedophilia, necrophilia, pederasty, bestiality, anything. It's all open season because we could argue that we were born that way and we have the right to sexual expression. Sex with kids, sex with kangaroos, or sex with a cadaver would all be a matter of personal choice. Oh, that'll never happen, you say. Really? Really? Well, did you think just five seconds ago that we'd be arguing that a man is a woman and a woman is a man? Did you think we'd be arguing to blur the lines between adults and children when it comes to sexual choice? And we are doing that right now. If a child can choose his or her gender and engage in hormone therapy or surgery, then why can't that same child choose to engage in other sexual activities? It's a matter of consent, right? That's where we're going. So on what basis would you or anyone else argue that such behaviors are wrong? Frankly, in such a world, we would have no moral arguments for or against any action, sexual or otherwise. If personal behavior, if personal behaviors are predetermined by nature or by nurture, then personal freedom and any corresponding concepts of morality and responsibility are moot. They're just moot by definition. I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion.